Hi, and welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On BTS Podcast, I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do. This specific episode is with Jamina Jeff. She is a Spellman alum, population geneticist, self-taught coder, and she is the host of In Those Genes Pod, genes being spelled G-E-N-E-S. We discuss her experience in getting her PhD. I love that Janina is really candid about her struggle with her own identity and her work as a population geneticist. We talk about some of the hard truths that she has had to grapple with and why she has not taken a consumer genetic test. We also talk about her process of preparing for the TEDx talk that she gave, what she learned, and what she forgot to say during her talk at TEDx Flatbush. So please do listen to hear that tidbit. I'm so grateful she decided to share it with me on this podcast, and I'm excited to share it with the listeners of this podcast. I am so grateful for everything that Janina shared in our conversation, and before we even started recording and after, she's really, really great, and I encourage you to listen to her podcast. There are links to her podcast, her TEDx talk, and her social platforms in the description of this episode. Please do follow her and support her work and share it with people. In addition, please do share this podcast with people. There are so many good quotes in this episode. I really loved getting to hear from Janina and please do share it on social and be sure to tag both us. Well, I guess just me, (laughs) the podcast host. Um, This podcast can be found at BTS, the podcast across socials. And Janina is at in those jeans pod on Twitter and her Instagram is DJJAY squared. So be sure to tag her and follow her, etc. If you would like to support this podcast, which I really hope that you would, please go to anchor.fm slash BTS podcast, where you can become a monthly contributor for as little as 99 cents a month or more. Huge shout out to Camillo for his contribution every month. It's super appreciated and you too can get a shout out on this podcast if you start supporting. If you would prefer to not do that and instead want to save money on some rad purchases, please do use my promo codes for some of my favorite services. I'm a huge fan of Soothe, which brings massages to you. You can get in-home massages or in your hotel or wherever. They also do office visits. Please use LZLRZ to save on your first Soothe booking. They're great. I'm a big fan of the deep tissue massage. You can get a variety of types of massages, including couples massage and prenatal. And you can also choose the gender of your massage therapist if that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable. And yeah, I've had nothing but good experiences. If you are planning any travel or would ever like a staycation at a hotel near you, I highly recommend Hotel Tonight. You can use LCOOK61 when you sign up and then just book whenever and you'll save on your first Hotel Tonight booking. They have excellent hotels around the world. I've saved tons of money thanks to using them. They have a great in-app concierge and excellent filter settings. Basically how they work is they see which hotels still need to book hotel rooms, which means that they're way cheaper than normal. I've gotten really incredible, solid, nice hotels for very discounted prices in Las Vegas, Tokyo, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Washington, New York, wherever. They're great. So use LCOOK61 to save. 
share that with your friends if you know that they are looking to save on their hotel booking and it's greatly, greatly appreciated because it helps me save on my hotels when I need hotel rooms. And last but not least, I love Instacart. I've gotten my groceries delivered for years. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it has saved me a lot of time and headache and as someone who often does not have a car, conveniently near them. It has been absolutely wonderful. For just around $100 a year, I think, you get free delivery year-round on orders over $35. What's also awesome is that you can choose a delivery from multiple grocery stores at a particular time. So you can get your Ralph's plus PCC or whatever. It's also a great way to get groceries delivered without giving more money to Amazon if that's the sort of thing that concerns you because definitely it concerns me. And I think that's about it. Shout out to Benjamin Betherm for the music on this podcast. I super appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe, rate, review, share this episode, follow Janina. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording and editing it. Thanks. Hey, you are listening to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook, and today I have on Janina Jeff. Hi, Janina. Hi. So Janina is a senior bioinformatics scientist at Illumina and the host of the In Those Genes podcast and a very recent TEDx speaker. Congratulations. Thank you. She is a geneticist, and um, rather than me defining what that means, <laughs> would you like to define what it, being a geneticist means? Yeah, so um, I have a PhD in human genetics, and basically what I do, so humans are 99% the same, 99.9% mm-hmm. the same, and there's 1.1% that makes us different. And so what I do as a geneticist, um, I look at that 0.1% mm-hmm. and I look for correlations with disease. I, I just try to understand that 1%. Specifically at my role um, at Illumina, I am looking at that 1% and how we can better define signatures in the genome um, from a technology perspective that could be used. And so... Human geneticists study that 1% um, of the genome and try to understand the differences between you and me that could cause diseases, that could explain characteristics, behavioral differences, um, and on the technology end, we try to understand how can we interrogate that 1% to give us information. So when you're saying study that information, how do you study it? Like, What does that look like? Is it a screen? Like, what are you looking at? Yeah. So DNA is comprised of four we call nucleotides. Mm. And I hope you all uh, were paying attention in class. Yeah, these four nucleotides. So DNA has four nucleotides, and um, the, we call them A, T, C, and G, mm-hmm. adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. And um, basically, like... I like to think of this as a book, like a recipe book, and your DNA is the recipe book on all the things that your body needs for survival and to function. And so if I, you know, if you were to give a DNA sample, we can extract and really um, extract DNA from your blood or whatever kind of sample you give. And we can make, we can figure out those letters, right? So we can take the data um, from your blood and then be able to extract out the order of those mm-hmm. letters in your recipe book. So is that data, is it literally like, is it code or what does it look yeah. like? Like, 
how does it get from our blood into the, the computer? computer? I sound like, like Zoom. <laughs> no, it's okay. So you send in your blood sample. We mm-hmm. extract the DNA from your blood sample. Mm-hmm. And then we do um, we do a technology. Most people do a technology similar to what we call sequencing. Mm-hmm. And basically sequencing is determining the order of those A, T, C, and Gs. And mm-hmm. so with your DNA sample, we are taking it pulling out the A, T, C, and Gs, and then creating a data set, if you will, for mm-hmm. you of your letter, your letters in order. And we can figure out what order those letters are in mm-hmm. by comparing it to something we call the reference genome. Mm-hmm. So the human, um, the human genome was sequenced in 2003. Right. And since then, that, that gives us kind of like a map, mm-hmm. right, of what humans should look like. Yeah, it's the globe of the genome. Exactly, exactly. And so when you send in your DNA sample, we, you know, extract the DNA, and then we get output of those letters. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at, um, when we're looking at the data, we can figure out what each letter is by a couple of different characteristics that each letter has. So these are nucleotides, and for all intents and purposes, these are, you know, uh, chemical compounds, right? Mm -hmm. And so they are slightly different in terms of, you know, try not to make this too complicated, but like, (laughs) um, they're slightly different. So A, T, C, and G are slightly different. And so we can figure out those differences and then we can turn that into actual data. Mm-hmm. So if it comes from the machine, we have these like, they look like peaks actually mm-hmm. of A's and T's and C's and G's. And then we can, we can translate that into a data set. Mm-hmm. And so once it's translated into a data set, then it comes over to someone like me um, mm-hmm. in the context of when I was a researcher and then I would take that data set of hundreds of thousands of people, um, mm-hmm. and then I would, you know, look for those letters and look for associations with those letters in particular phenotypes. So, for example, red hair. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, she's pointing at me because I have red hair. That's why she brings it up, in case you didn't know that. Yes. Flaming red hair. <laughs> And, you know, there are genetic signatures right. in the genome um, for, hair, for hair characteristics. Right. And so you can do correlations like that to determine what they are. Um, so essentially, like, I don't know if that answers your question of how we get back down to the data set. In a way, yeah. Okay. I guess maybe we can backtrack a little bit. How did you learn about this as a practice? Because this mm. is not something that's in, like, um, I would say regular educational discourse as an option. Yeah. Maybe it is now because of, like we were saying before we started recording, there is 23andMe, so people have a little bit more of an idea what, why anyone would care about their genes from that very, like, sort of narrow lens of where, like, your relatives came from geographically, but um, certainly this has been a practice long before that. Yeah. Um, And there's, you know, you specified that you're a human geneticist. Clearly there's also other types of geneticists. That's why we have genetically modified foods. Yes. Um, My aunt is also, which I don't know why I didn't bring this up sooner. My aunt works in bioinformatics. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's (laughs) good. Yeah. um, So I have like a little bit more probably understanding that I'd say like the normal, like the average person. Okay. Um, And she works at the Jackson laboratory. Oh, okay. Well, she did for a long time. I think she's doing different stuff now, but she's still in Maine. And so luckily, like at an early age, I got to go and see what they were doing and give me a better understanding of what that is. But 
how did you find out about this as like a practice? Like, yeah. were you very into biology as a as a high school student? Did so you- it's so funny because when I was, um, I went to Spelman College in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I was a biology major, and I was like, I want to be a physician. At the time, my parents um, were pregnant when I was moving wow. into college. Yeah, I have a brother who's. 19 months younger, and I have a sister who's 18 years younger. Wow. And so my mom had difficulties during her pregnancy. She was much older. And I said, oh, I want to be an OBGYN. And I you know, saw a cadaver for the first time. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. I'm good. Yeah. And I was always working Fair. in a lab because... You know, in terms of behind the scenes, I do not know how I pay for Spelman. Like, mm. neither one of my parents went to college. You know, my parents, we their income was less than $30,000 a year. I had, you know, like, I know how I was going to make it work. Um, but I knew that I was going to be in the sciences. And so, also, I was, you know, trying to get money any way I could. So, I had three jobs when I was at Spelman. I had a job as a hostess at a restaurant in which I would stand there. It was a perfect job for a biology major because I could stand there and it wasn't a busy restaurant. Right. And so I could study yeah. um, while I was at work. And then I used to do valet parking and then I worked in a lab. And so mm-hmm. when I started working in a lab, I um, I worked in a lab with a professor and we call it a damp lab now. And that was my first introduction to bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. Um, we say damp because you uh, a wet lab is like you're in the lab, you're pipetting tubes, you know, traditional, like when people, when I say, tell people I'm a scientist, they always assume that I'm like in a white coat all the time with goggles on and lab coat and just like working at a sequencer. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or, you know, genetically modifying humans. That's another thing a lot of people like to to think. And so, um, but I was working in a genetics lab and at the time it was a bovine genetics lab. Oh yeah. And we were looking at fetal cow birth weight. Um, in association with, uh, you know, genetics. And so I was doing exactly what I was ex- describing earlier, d- extracting DNA, mm-hmm. um, replicating DNA, and getting information from the DNA into computer form. Mm-hmm. Now, informatics became a part, and this was here, now I'm going to a website and saying, hey, now I have my data, can you tell me what it means? And that was considered bioinformatics. So that was the dry part of the lab because you didn't have to, you know, be at a bench and there was, it was literally just at your computer, literally dry. Right. Um, And so that was my introduction into bioinformatics and genetics. Also, genetics was the only class that I had gotten an A in, (laughs) like all of the science classes. I was definitely you know, on a social side for this, for a scientist and, mm-hmm. uh, I had a good time, you know, yeah, but genetics, <laughs> genetics, I got an AN and I enjoyed working in this lab. Yeah. So that was my first introduction to bioinformatics. And I love what I loved about it in terms of other types of scientists, mm-hmm. you know, I did not have to worry about, you know, any kind of moral feelings I had about you know, hurting animals. Yeah. I didn't have to depend on animals for data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, you know, wanted to be what we call now a base pair to bedside, right? So I wanted to, and base pair is what we call like those nucleotides. Mm. And so it's just kind of like a, 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 a little catchphrase to kind of show how closely genetics is to like real application. Right. So then when I got to Vanderbilt, um, you know, I was in an interdisciplinary program. So we weren't tied to a department. You came in, it was the class of 100, and you just 
you rotate it in different departments and decide what lab you want it to be in. And the human genetics department was maybe about four or five years old. Mm-hmm. And I did a rotation there. And I was working with scientists who were like directly looking at humans and directly looking at human health. Mm-hmm. And I immediately, and it was dry. So I was like, okay, I don't have to worry about animals. I don't have to worry about... I don't have to do that part. But then also I could clearly see a connection to what I'm doing in human health that I could, you know, think about my family. I can think, you know, I can think about things that are closely related to me in the community. Mm-hmm. And the only thing though is that I had no statistics experience at that time. Mm. I also had no coding experience. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when you're thinking about data and large data sets and correlations, this is all statistics and, and computational. Yeah. Never, I took I took one computer science class at Spelman. Mm-hmm. Never had a, a, any type of, you know, background in that. And so during my PhD, um, I actually have a master's too. I have a master's in applied statistics mm-hmm. that Vanderbilt, we had like a dual program. So I was able to do that. But in that process is kind of like, I just learned and I, I learned mostly because I had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> if I wanted to be successful, um, the, the master's in statistics definitely was helpful in understanding. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the coding itself, it was a matter of I need to get this done. And um, Google is my friend. I think I'm an expert Googler. I actually think getting a PhD teaches you how to Google, which is not as straightforward as it seems. Right. You know, like there, it's a it's a science, really. It is. And so um, I'm a self-taught coder, definitely not a software engineer kind of level, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I build things. I, as I've gotten deeper into my field, very, very have suffered also and seen a lot of mistakes with human error. Mm. So I much rather create a code and feel comfortable yeah. that I don't have to, you know, do anything. Yeah. And then how did you find a job? Ooh, yeah, so I was... Um, because that's also very narrow. Like, I mean, I imagine mm. just sort of if if you know that you don't want to be working with an- animals and like in these categories that you feel, you know, ethically sort of uh, iffy about mm-hmm. and you know that you want to work, like that's like with having a marketing background, yeah. I'm like, oh, everybody has market. This is easy. I could be in-house. I could be at an agency, you yeah. know, whereas... I imagine like yours, it's like probably a lot of tied to institutions or different companies. And like, I don't know, that's just such an interesting area to like look for work. How did you navigate? So the interesting thing is during this time when I was like getting my PhD and like getting all this training, Uh it was kind of, it wasn't the beginning, but it was, we were, you know, it was still very new. It was in a nascent. Yeah. And so there were, it was a huge, and to this day, there's still extremely high demand for bioinformaticians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a postdoc. So I originally was going to be a professor. I mm-hmm. said, I wanted to be a professor. I want to be able to have the freedom to work on what I want to work on. Turns out that's just not how academia really works. Um, <laughs> you work on what gets funded. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily get to work on what you want to right. work on. Unless you worked on getting that funded. Unless you work <laughs> on getting that funded. And by chance, what you actually like is something that... the granting agencies also are interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was not the case for me. And so uh, I never thought about working at Illumina, actually. What does Illumina do? 
So Illumina is a, G, a genotyping and sequencing company. Okay. Um, technically, we're a biotech company, and we create technology um, for genetic for genetic use. So mm-hmm. we have two main technologies. One of them is genotyping, and in that case, basically, instead of looking at the entire genome letter by letter, what you can do is you can pick certain letters that kind of represent the full picture. So I kind of mm-hmm. think of them as like ambassadors, like of certain areas, you know, mm-hmm. you can have these ambassadors. And that was a very, that was kind of like the first technology that was used to look at the whole genome. Mm. And um, so like if there was just for sort of the purpose of applications, if there was uh, like what a normal redhead sort of looks like genetically, then you could go, hey, here's the foundation we're seeing, you know, whatever sort of disease or something crop up in a lot of redheads. Let's find out, like, what the difference is. Is that sort of, like, how it would be used as, like, a... Yeah. Because... Both, both technologies would be. But let's say, um, you know, let's say in an area we know that one letter contributes to red hairness, right? Mm-hmm. But next to it, you know, it's... it's uh, But next to it, we can still see the same. We can still observe the same thing. We don't need to pick both letters we can just pick one Mm, because mm -hmm. they're you know because they're close they're likely giving you the same information yeah and so that happens yeah you know especially in the context of something right next to it but not always right because you know as as human populations we evolve and so you know what changes like they're related to so letters next to each other are related to each other may give you the same information Mm -hmm. but there's going to be a, a breaking point, right? Yeah. Where now this, you know, let's say these bunch of letters that's giving us the same information switches. And so that breaking point is called a recombination spot, right? And recombination happens for a lot of different reasons. Um, for survival, mm-hmm. maybe you were of mixed ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so as you could imagine, that, that way of picking one letter to represent a whole block can be right. If you do it, and you, and that's what I do, mm-hmm. actually. I actually pick those letters that should that we should use. Mm-hmm. And I'm making a huge assumption here that I'm not missing anything. Right. But the other technology is called sequencing. Mm-hmm. And what sequencing says is, like, let's not, let's not guess. Let's just look at every single letter. Right. Now, sequencing is a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. a lot more accurate. Right. Um, and so you won't miss anything. So sequencing is like really a big technology, particularly for cancer, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, there might be just one letter that we've never seen before. We would never be able to pick it up using that ambassador model that I was talking about. Right. And we, we would definitely need to have every single letter to figure it out. Interesting. Yeah. So you do that for your nine to five yeah. or eight to six, depending on what kind of work environment it is or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell you yeah. how I got out of Luminum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do, do you want to? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was going to go into academia. Okay. I was set on going to academia and, uh, every year at Illumina, we have like this big party. Like it's a huge, I mean, every year at our major meeting, which is called the American Society of Human Genetics, Illumina throws the biggest party. Like it is crazy Mm -hmm. um and I was at the party and I met someone there and I just networked with him Mm -hmm. heard from him a full year later and he I was just like I'll just meet with him to see like what he's talking about he he mentioned sales and I was like yeah no this is not gonna work Uh uh-huh he mentioned me to his boss and his boss was really fascinated because the the lab that I was working in which is a population genetics lab um had just developed a product for Illumina 
So he was like really, you know, hellbent on recruiting me. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, you know, that's like, I don't want to move to San Diego. And he said, you know, you can live in New York. And he kind of just offered me the package of a lifetime oh my um, to move in New York. He no longer is with the company, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. it was, that was kind of the sequence of events. And I'm extremely grateful because I love working from home. Bioinformatics mm-hmm. takes a lot of my brain and I need like complete autonomy yeah. to really focus and execute things. And I'm also my most creative self, mm-hmm. typically by myself um yeah early mornings and in 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 sleep so yeah so that's how I that's how I got at Illumina and um also there was a lot of political things going on in academia and just you know a lot of moral things that I wasn't exactly uh you know you know wanted to be a part of Mm -hmm. I was also looking to work in pharma and so morally and ethically I just didn't feel like that was a good fit for me yeah and I like that Illumina kind of offers me you know, an opportunity to step away from it. Like I'm one yeah. step away from it, although Illumina is still, you know, the big provider for all of these companies. I'm not directly, you know, And at least you're it. on the end of, if nothing else, because um, the the power and like the control of ethics of those companies is not in any one individual's hands, really, exactly. right? Um, but at least you're in a position where that you can, to the best of your ability, make sure that the information they're getting is as beneficial to as much of the population as possible um and going like oh that you know especially as like a black woman that like you've you're having that perspective of like am i making sure that black people are represented in this am i making sure women are represented in this whereas and i'm sure this should not be news to anybody who's listening's ears that like women and people of color have been left out of data sets for a long time. Yeah. And like medicine has not been properly tested on women for a very long time. Um, and so we've been just suffering from that in many ways yeah. from a medical perspective um, because women were not included in so many studies over the years. Yeah. And, and that was the best part about my job. So I'm a population geneticist and at my job specifically, I make population based genotyping arrays, which is that technology I was telling you about where you mm-hmm. have to make sure you pick the right one. Yeah. And so I actually work on country specific projects. Interesting. And so yeah, so I that I literally get to do that. That's so I get cool. to work on diversity and inclusion through genetic technology. Mm-hmm. Never thought about explaining my job that way, but I'm definitely gonna do that now. Yeah, please um, do. I'm happy to have facilitated that yeah. conversation. So the first product that I built is called the Global Screening Array. And the okay. whole purpose there was to make sure that we capture all five continental populations. Uh-huh. And then um, the other one uh, was an Asian screening array, and that one is specific to East Asian populations. Oh, interesting. And so one of the things I really like about my job also is that I'm able to, you know, really work and collaborate with scientists, the biggest scientists mm. across the world. That's amazing. Like the big companies that we know about here, I get to work with those companies in China, I get to work in those companies in Japan, as well as the big professors. And so now, you know, I really have a global network. I travel about 30 to 40% of my time. Mm. And for each project, I'm usually traveling to that area or that country. So the past two years, I've spent a lot of time in Asia. Very cool. Yeah. And we so talk about that some more because I, I had, I was lucky enough to spend some time there for work a while ago. What part? Where'd you go? Um, I was in different parts of China and then okay. I've been to Japan three times. Okay. But I haven't been to other Asian countries. So okay. I've only been, I've been 
In China, I've been to Wuhan, Shanghai, and Beijing. Okay. Um, and I probably in total spent like a month in China. And then in Japan, I've uh, spent a lot of time in Fukuoka. Okay. And then some time in Kyoto and a little bit of time in Tokyo. Okay. Um, I've been to Kyoto and Tokyo. Yeah. It's, it's great. But it's like, it's definitely very fascinating. And it's, I think, you know, both of those countries uh, are so different from anything in the U.S. And then each pocket is so different and it's um so when people and I don't know if you've ran into this but definitely I've had a lot of people go like oh so like like they want you to surmise it in sort of like a brief thing and it's like that's like if you went if you came to America with zero understanding Mm -hmm. of American culture and like you were thrown into like Dallas Minneapolis Mm -hmm. and New York or Vegas (laughs) right exactly like if you're thrown in Vegas you're like this is what kind of representation like this is a whole huge country like this one city is not necessarily actually Vegas is like a gross representation of it is right? in fact like this is like the it's embarrassing I'm like oh I'm sorry I mean but it, unfortunately what I think about too though is that like that sort of like Vegas Disney-fied uh, very like opulent uh, pocket of our culture is what the rest of the world yeah. sees yeah which is yeah if you're listening you should definitely watch Generation Wealth it is amazing um okay. I don't know if you've seen that I'll have, have to check you? it out yeah it's really good. Um, it really just sheds light on uh, how America's ruined everything. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it, to an extent, it is, um, it's interesting. So you've had this job for a while now. Yes. And Three, almost four years now. Yeah. You have recently started In Those Jeans, a podcast. Yeah. Which um, I saw that you uploaded the trailer like a week or so ago. Yeah. Are you, when are you, you're launching in fall? Launching early 2020. Early 2020. Okay. And how have you, because from experience, I know that running a podcast is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, how have you gone about like folding that in with your current like role? Ooh. Okay. Um, that's an interesting question. So I have very long nights. Mm-hmm. I basically, um, you know, do my day job during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work mostly on the podcast Monday through Wednesday in the evenings mm-hmm. and Friday afternoons. Yeah. Um, and sometimes on the weekend, like tomorrow, I have a six-hour session. What um, are you doing for six hours? Uh, for six hours, yeah. I mean, I'm working on kind of like, so there's so many different angles to releasing a podcast, right? Uh-huh. The hardest part and the biggest part is actually doing what we're doing uh-huh. um, recording it and then there's editing it I have a yes. producer thank god oh, good. and she does I'm all jealous. the editing and she's she's amazing <laughs> um, shout out to Sam and then there's you know the scripting the idea generation the thinking about legal and admin stuff I hate admin stuff um, yeah, <laughs> I absolutely hate it, Fair. but it's important. Um, thinking about the branding yeah. and all this stuff. So even um, how I even got into podcasting is a very interesting story mm-hmm. behind the scenes. This yeah, is, please. So um, one of my so I naturally kind of fell into, and I think it's just because there's not many of me. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of role of being a mentor, a STEM advocate, a STEAM advocate, and public speaking, mm-hmm. and as a result. You know, I started to kind of like build this, I guess you can say brand. It feels yeah. so formal. But like be, being my authentic self had started to attract a lot of like pub, uh, public engagement, mm-hmm. um, particularly with communities of color and, and exposure to genetics and genomics. And so 
um, one of my friends told me, hey, Spotify is having this competition for women of color. Yeah. You should apply. I'm so glad you did. Yeah. He's like, you should apply. And I went home the next day. I went home that night and I was like, I, I told him like, I was like, no, I'm not doing it. Like, what would my podcast be about? What would I talk about? And literally I get my, I get my ideas in my sleep. And in my sleep, I literally just like put it together. It was mm-hmm. in those jeans. It had always been that name ever since I applied. And I, um, the applicant woke up the next day. So let me see when the application is due. It was due that day. Of course. Um, it was due that day. So one of the great things about being in academia and choosing not to stay in academia is I have a lot of grant writing experience, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of unfunded grants, but <laughs> a lot of grant writing experience and just a lot of writing experience in general. Yeah. Granted, it's scientific writing, but and which is different. But, you yeah. know, I was used to kind of like putting something together at short notice. Right. I literally um, had two hours in the afternoon after work and I like pushed through that that application and just submitted it. And I was like, whatever. Probably not going to get it because it's whatever. And 18,000 people applied and they kept pushing back the data on when they were going to tell people. Then I got an email that said I was rejected. And mm-hmm. I was like, ah. you know, I had that little moment of sync. And then I was yeah. like, I'm fine. I was actually on the way to therapy. Perfect timing. Yeah, right. Then right after that email, I got another email that said, congratulations, you're in the top 20. And I was like, this is confusing. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was an, in that email like, oh, we apologize. We sent the rejection letter to everyone by mistake. So I was actually in the top 20. So it was like, I went really low. I'm on a train, right? So I'm going to right. Columbia Circle. I went really low and then really kind of like high again because what it said was also that I had to do another interview right, to get into the top 10. So I did the other interview and I made it to the top 10 and I did the Spotify uh, Women of Color and Podcasting Boot Camp, start oh, a boot camp. I was, I'm so glad they did a boot camp for that yeah. because I looked at that and I thought like, hopefully they're not just like giving people money and then... And then, like, putting people in this position to not be set up for success, yeah. right? Because yeah. Well, they were the first to do it, yeah. you know? And it was the very first one. And after that, now you see them everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it was a good experience. And so, like, I really was, like, huh, looking at those academics, like, see, all those grants? Look at my likelihood here. I was, like, really, <laughs> like, I'm stressed out about grants out of 100 applications. And, look, 18,000. This isn't so bad, right? Um. And so I, I pitched that week and I won and I was just like, wow. Um, and so I got, I got $10,000 to start oh my, um, my, to start my podcast. That's incredible. Now I had no idea what I was doing, but the boot camp definitely, you know, gave me a roadmap to how to start yeah. and where to start. And we had two coaches that coached us to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, this was last year. And ever since I've just been working on it, like, Nonstop. That's amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Yep. And then, do you get to keep in touch with those coaches for ongoing mentorship? Um. Yeah. Informally. Yeah. Informally, yeah. definitely. Yeah. That's but incredible. I've met so many people, and you know, just like really dipping my toe into the podcast industry. I never would. You know, I always, I always want to make sure I'm never. Um, I am by no means an expert podcaster. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely learning and new to this, and. And and Nobody's I own an that, but podcaster like it's yeah. because it also it's it's such a changing format. I mean, and it's also so old, right? Like if you think yeah. about it, it's really just radio shows on the internet, pretty much. What it comes on down demand. to, totally. <laughs> and so, um, I was very hard on myself when I first, when my friend Avery and I started our first podcast, and then when I was starting this one, I was like, you know what? You can figure out. You can always go back and build a website or whatever because I'm doing it myself, right? 
that I was like, I'm not going to keep putting this off until everything's perfect because it'll never be perfect. Yeah, and like, have and that it's bad just, issue. It's a hard thing because it is really easy. And what put me at ease was that I listened to some of uh, my favorite podcasts that are not, um, you know, WNYC or NPR podcasts that are just in, independently produced. And I was like, oh, they make mistakes all the time or they have like bad audio quality or sometimes certain whatever. Cause I listened to, I'd never really listened to them until Avery and I were starting ours. And then I started listening to it and I was like, oh my gosh, if, Tim, if Tim Ferriss has terrible quality of podcast sometimes, like, like what, what makes, I don't need to be perfect. Like yeah. just put it out there because I've done that a lot in life is like just not done an idea that I had because it wasn't where I wanted it to be. Yeah. And, um, the good news is, is like, because nobody's funding me, only I have expectations, right? Like it's good and bad, right? Right. These are all (laughs) self-imposed. And then I'm like, well, if it sucks, nobody will listen. And if nobody listens, no one will know it sucks. It'll be fine. (laughs) That's a really good way of looking at it. I like that. Thank you. I like that. So I'm now going through that phase. I'm, you know, which your trailer sounds amazing. Oh, thank by you. By the way. That's all and Sam. Sam's amazing. So the podcast is, you know, I wanted to kind of like fuse in all the things that I love. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a, if you haven't already noticed in me explaining things, I have a problem with simplifi- simplifying things. Oh, it's so And hard. so I'm Same. trying to like work on, you know, less is more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let you listen to our pilot, but it's just like. I just have like all these things. One of the things that's really important to me and the major, you know, thing around the podcast is that we teach genetics education um, through black culture. Mm-hmm. And particularly on the podcast, we try to do that mostly through music mm-hmm. um, and audio. And so we really are kind of like going in on the sound. So right. it is in I, I it is an orgasmic experience, yeah. is what I it's like. It's definitely to talk an audio auditory like there's a lot going on, but, but it's good. Yeah, and, and and it's, you know, again, to your point, I also love feedback. I like mm-hmm. people to be critical on me. It's yeah. a weird, I don't know, addiction. And so I have to, like, say, no, this is the end. We're yeah. going to stop, and I need good. to put this out. Yeah. So it's, it's coming out early 2020 regardless. And the only reason it's coming out early 2020 is because we don't want to leave folks with five episodes and be like, oh. Totally. It takes a lot of production. Yeah. Um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of production and they're, yeah, I'm excited about it though. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and you are recently a TEDx speaker. Yes. Congratulations. Thank and it you. was the Flatbush TEDx, right? Is yep. that right? TEDx Flatbush. TEDx Flatbush. Um, can you talk a little bit how that came about? Because I, um, somebody else was on this podcast. His aunt was encouraging him to apply she walked me through it a little bit, but I don't remember the details. So, like, do you you know that it's coming to your area and you just apply? How does that work? So, it's interesting. I did not know the details either. Mm-hmm. So, someone who um, is or- was organizing it reached out to me, and they started following me. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I started following their page. And then when they were doing a call out for speakers, um, someone at you said, you should apply. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, hmm, should I apply? I don't know. If I have time, I will apply, mm-hmm. of course. I now have a reputation of doing things the day that they're due. It was due on a <laughs> Whatever, Saturday. you did it. So the first time, I missed a deadline. Uh-huh. And then they extended it. And when I extended it, I was like, I'm, go- I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And what I did not know, though, was that the application was pretty long mm-hmm. um, because there are a lot of questions in there that pertain to, like, the area that you're doing. So Flatbush in Brooklyn specifically. Um, that I hadn't really thought about. Mm. Um, and then there was a one-minute video. 
Oh my gosh, how scary. So speaking of behind the scenes, one of the things that I do with the podcast, um, which is kind of like gives, you know, because we're taking so long to let it out. Mm-hmm. I am literally including my listeners in my behind the scene projects. Oh, cool. And so for our donors on our GoFundMe page who have donated, you know, certain amounts of money, I share with them my Spotify application. I share with them my TEDx application. Cool. Because one of the things that I've experienced with this is that, you know, I have a PhD, you know, I'm extremely in that regard privileged, you know, um, and one of the things I don't like about these kind of application styles, it can be very exclusionary if you don't also have, you know, amazing writing skills and training. Totally. Does that mean you're a bad podcaster? Absolutely not. Right. Does that mean that you couldn't be a good public speaker? Absolutely not. And how do we like, how do we change that? Right. So we have to like start sharing, you know, like information, start sharing, sharing information. Yeah. This application worked. Um, you should take from it what you will. It may, it may or may not work for you, but, you know, just to see how things are written, I think is really helpful. So I'm always, you know, even my old grant applications, I still share with students. I always share them. Yeah. Even the ones who were unfunded, you know, just yeah. if anything to get an idea of the format. Because it does help us, you know, I, in fact, I've been meaning to put it out for a while. I have like a long sort of like text doc of just a lot of quotes I've seen in the New Yorker or pulled from different podcasts or wherever, or like, I don't know if you're familiar with Timothy Morton. He's like mm-hmm. a ecologist and he wrote a book called Realist Magic and I love it. And mm-hmm. I have a few quotes pulled from there, but it's all these quotes from different places, whether it has to do with feelings or emotions or like how to describe what we do and whatever that like, to your point, if you don't have that framework, or like this particular verbiage around explaining, like earlier we were talking about what you do, and, and I think you phrased it like a diversity and inclusion approach to uh, genetics or something to that yeah. effect. That takes a long time to come up with. Like there's a reason that it's literally like with ecologists, like it's people's job to name things, yeah. right? Yeah. Because that's not an easy thing to do. And so it is very helpful, I think, to sort of like dissolve a lot of the fears that go around applying for things. Um, whether that be grants or to be a TEDx speaker or like I had on um, Jessica Couch, uh, she's a fit technology strategist. And we talked about the process of her and her um, partner on, they put together, a, it's actually tomorrow, called the Women of Color Fash Tech Brunch. Oh, nice. Um, where it's like where fashion and technology intersect. And it's like women of color. And in fact, they opened it up to allies. So I'm going tomorrow. So oh, I'm very excited. Nice. I know. I was like... I was like, is it weird if I come? Like, because I saw the, the allies thing and I started to panic. And then I was like, they're your friends. Just, if just they said go. allies are welcome, what are you, why are you second guessing it? <laughs> not a conspiracy theory <laughs> meeting or anything. Well, well, not that, but I just would never want anyone to be like, why are you, like, I would never want anyone mm. to feel that way. Well, that's good that you are mindful of, you know, of that space, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, if um, you really think about like the solution to all these things, like they have to be inclusionary. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I just am like, oh, if it's for women of color, I would never just self-invite, you know, but then when they announced it was to allies, I was like, oh, I'm in New York. Obviously I'm getting a ticket. Like I'll buy a ticket and go. And so she was on talking about the South by Southwest application because she and Brittany had a panel. And I think it's just so helpful. Like it even helped me apply for South by Southwest for 2020, just hearing her go like, yeah, I mean, it was hard, but then we did it. And then either you get accepted or you don't, but you're certainly not going to get accepted if you don't do it. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, idiot. It never myself. hurts to just throw your name in there. You totally. never know. 
Um, and that, yeah, I mean, that, that's just really how it was. So I, I did the video, mm -hmm. um, which was, it was rocky and so much. So <laughs> like, despite how embarrassed I am about that video, when I sent out to my family and friends that I was going to be a TEDx speaker, I put the video in there. Oh, good for you. So like, it also is kind of like, you know, it's therapy for me too, mm -hmm. to be, to expose myself. Yeah. Um, to be vulnerable. To be way. vulnerable. Yeah. It's scary and it hurts a little yeah but it also really feels good because we also I think we all know what that means to us when other people have been yes. vulnerable yes and like how I mean like we were saying before we started recording so much of this podcast is about humanizing career options and yeah. success so that it's like I mean I went to a um like a National Geographic NASA co event type thing and the guy who was speaking has, like, spent a ton of time in space, and he's taken, like, more photos from space than anybody else. And, like, and somebody said to him once, they were like, oh, like, I wish I could be an astronaut, but I'm just a normal person. And the guy was like, yeah, I'm also, also a, normal a normal person. person. Like, I'm just also a person that dedicated my life to this study, and I was lucky enough to go to space. But, like... You know, and I think about it. From, I'm still human. Yeah, I'm still human. I tell people all the time. I, I, you know, a lot of people will congratulate me on my success and almost make it seem, and I struggle with this actually, mm -hmm. make it seem as though, you know, something is so different and unique about me. Actually, when I won the Spotify competition, I'm not a crier. But when I won the Spotify competition, I was like doing a little ugly cry, right? Uh -huh. little tears were dripping. Yeah, it's really And the exciting. tears weren't dripping because I was like super happy. Uh-huh. Um, the tears were dripping because I was like, wow, like in a way, like why me? Um, interesting. It was like, why me? But also like I, it is me. Right. And now, um, it's a beautiful thing that I have this opportunity to bring to light something that hasn't been brought to light before. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, you know, the realization that this could have been anyone, Mm -hmm. And I'm just a vessel. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I struggle with the same things that everyone else struggles with. I second guess myself. I was afraid to ask questions in school. I got F's. I, you know, mm -hmm. failed things. Um, and I've been given this opportunity, mm -hmm. but I'm still the same person. Right. And I'm a person who, you know, did get this opportunity and was privileged to get this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there is no reason why anyone else can be. And so that's another reason why, you know, it's really important that we do more sharing. Also, whenever I mentor students, I tell them how much I make. I tell mm -hmm. them my struggle with, with um, negotiating. Mm -hmm. And it's important to tell them who I was. Right. You know, it's hard for me to admit who I was. Like, was I always this person who was aware of gender inequality mm. and racial inequality. Mm -hmm. No, you and I were just talking. Like I would hear things people say and would pretend like I didn't hear or not speak up. Mm -hmm. I was once that person and I put myself into the perspective of the student. I was once just like you, afraid to do this or afraid to do that. Um, but I'm happy that I didn't and I pushed past that fear. Yeah. But it's okay to grow. Yeah. And give yourself space to grow. And when you grow into a person that, you know, you've evolved and you've learned, mm -hmm. um, it's also okay to admit that you used to be that person who was not quite evolved. Like, it's okay to admit right. that you were once a person who, you know, maybe, you know, had some, some, 
I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like you were once a person who thought a certain way that you wouldn't be proud of today. Right. And it's important to acknowledge who that person was. Definitely. And I think in fact, what ends up happening is that when we don't think, we we don't adopt that perspective as a society, that's what gets people stuck in their ways, you Mm -hmm. know, or even it's interesting because it is sort of like the sunken cost fallacy, but applied to like almost like morality Mm. where people will really double down on their feelings on their perspective on something or their judgment on something. Um, Largely, not largely, but I think a lot of that in conversations I've had with people about it, especially older people Mm. has a lot to do with like, well, I've already felt this way for so long, you know, or I've already been so vocal about this. And I think it's fascinating that, like, and we talked about this a little bit before we started, too, like, that we hit this point where we sort of think that because we're of a certain age that we should have, like, arrived and that nothing should change. And it's like, no, we should always, like, keep trying to be better. Like, why would you not Serena keep Williams progress? Sorry. To no, think. no. Serena Williams, when she lost last week, mm-hmm. put out this quote about just, like, trying. I don't remember it. But you guys should all listen. Go Google it. it I'll look was, it up. And it I'll was put it really up. amazing. And um, another thing, in the beginning of Michelle Obama's book, mm-hmm. she started, I can't remember if it was in the foreword or in the very first chapter. And she said, people would always ask me, or kids would ask me, or people would ask kids all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she's like, you, you, that's a horrible question. Yeah. Because you said always growing, it's, it makes it seem like it's an end destination. Yeah. It is not an end destination. No. It's a constant thing. And so, like, even coming to that realization kind of made me not ever want to compare myself with people by my age or by wherever I am in terms of professional. It also, like, encouraged me to try not to think about that and just experience it. Yeah. Live in the growing. Because mm-hmm. the growing is the beauty. No one ever likes a story and you come at me and you say, well, how did you get to be this successful? Well, I went to school and I graduated. Like, (laughs) no. I remember another story. Um, When I was in graduate school, I failed my qualifying exams. The qualifying Mm -hmm. exams when you're getting a PhD is an exam where like basically five professors grill you, oral exam for two hours about your knowledge on that subject. And um, I was the only black student. I was also the first black student to graduate. And yeah, and during She's this exam, yes because I, I think my eyes just like tripled in size. <laughs> yeah, so I went in. I studied for. Oh, I studied so hard. I went mm-hmm. in there. To, they asked me the first question, and I got it wrong. And it was like a horrible experience. The rest of those two hours, and I failed it. Wow. And when I failed it, um, I was crying hysterically, and my mentor, who is the most amazing person ever, um, you know, we were having a moment together. Um, And then I had learned, um, then a person came up to me afterwards, a friend of mine came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, I know you don't feel like this right now, but this makes your story that much more interesting. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to persevere and and overcome this. And I retook the test, passed with flying colors. It wasn't, you know... Yeah, it wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the world, but I yeah. felt like I hit a roadblock. And then more specifically for a minority, mm-hmm. when you're the first, you're the only. Right. My failure, and there's a, actually a psychological term for this that I don't know, but my failure was also the failure of the entire community and everyone before. Yeah. yeah. And 
it was so hard for me to mm-hmm. uh, to take that weight. Yeah. Um, and then I realized it wasn't necessarily my weight to take. Yeah. This was a part of my journey, and my journey included a failure. And the failure wasn't about me knowing anything. Right. The failure was about me sitting with six or five white scientists who I were already, you know, intimidated and afraid of. Yeah. And having, you know, as soon as I went into Vanderbilt, I had an inferiority complex, Mm. you know, being going, being black and going to all black schools, as much as we don't want to admit it, we inherently still have, you know, deep down and it might even be nuanced this idea that, you know, white people could be smarter than us. Mm -hmm. Um, And as much as it's hard to say that out loud and most people won't say that out loud, it, it lives in there. Um, And so and it's not true, right? But it, right. it it lived with me and stuck with me and that plus anxiety and doing an oral. Like who, who yeah, thought and, of this was a good a idea? Also. And being a woman. I will say, Vanderbilt, we had, um, I remember in that room, I think there were three women. There were three women. Out of yeah. how many? Uh, out of five. Oh, okay. So they I were, like, yeah, so like we, the- yeah, so like our department chair, he's always been very, you know, he, and he's there now at Case Western. So we've always had like strong women in science and I'm grateful to have women in mm-hmm. science to look up to, particularly when it comes to managing um, life and work balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah, they are amazing and it's hard. And what I, I would say, one thing I noticed is that they prioritized them first. Mm. And That's our, great. one of my mentors told me, she's like, you know, if you don't finish this today, no one dies. Yeah, it's true. That yeah. is, uh, I have like two coping mechanisms for uh, sort of like de-escalating my own anxieties about building things up. And one of them is like, no one's going to die, right? And like the sun will still rise tomorrow. Yeah. Because no matter how, like on the worst days of my life, whether I liked it or not, the sun still rose the next day. And it was like, oh, the rest of the world is going to keep turning. Yeah, I get, it keeps moving. Yeah, whether I get it together or not, like nobody else really, like globally, no one cares, right? <laughs> <laughs> like there are other things going on. And the other thing I remind myself of regularly is like dumber people have done this and done just fine. Like, I mean... One of the things that's most shocking to me as I get older is the amount of dumb people who oh, yeah. have positions higher than me. Yeah. Particularly mm-hmm. those who carry Y chromosomes. And I'm mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. how? How did you? How? And then, and then Failing I... Failing up. You know? And uh, one thing I definitely notice it, confidence is a big part of it. Confidence is a big one. In fact, um, Gary, who you met earlier, we were talking about, um, someone we worked with DJ who has a great quote that I think, what did he say? He'll tell women, I think sometimes just go in there with the confidence of a mediocre white man. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And that's how I am now. Whenever something doesn't go wrong, particularly in a service industry, I turn into a 50 year old Bob you know, yeah. who is the CEO of some oh, my, company, and I am so entitled. My dad's name is Robert. He's going to listen to this oh, and go like, sorry, why Dad? do I have to be Bob? Why? <laughs> Bob, I know you didn't choose your name. Yeah. Oh, my dad. He also doesn't complain to customer service, so he's safe from this. Okay, okay, good. Yeah. yeah, but I always, like, now I'm like, you know, I should be, I should embody this mm-hmm. entitlement. Right. Um, and I always do it respectable, and I always think about, you know, am I right in, in requesting this or right, am I writing my ass? You're not being a tyrant. No, But it's no. also like you don't want to be a doormat either and do yourself a disservice by falling into what the world says 
that like is an acceptable, you know, or what you've internalized even as an acceptable behavior, because they think, you know, a lot of times we do get that backlash as women. And then particularly as a black woman, you know, you, there's certain stereotypes. I'm sure that you're cognizant of not wanting to like be Mm -hmm. and like, certainly there will unfortunately always be people that no matter how we behave are going to project that stereotype Mm -hmm. on on people. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people that are going to be more open and it's like, well, you don't get the chance for either if you don't do the thing. Yeah. Right. Like you don't get the chance to get what you want and negotiate for whatever. If if you're afraid of not getting what you want. Yep. And so then you don't do it. Like that paralysis of fear is a guaranteed way to make sure you don't do it. Yeah. And like as scary as rejection is, it's scary until you've done it enough times. And then it's like, Oh, it actually, once you've normalized rejection, at least in my experience, it does make it go like, Oh, this, this is only as scary and as much weight I put in it. Right. Like as it's healthy. Yeah. I, I enjoy rejection sometimes Me too. because it's, it's like, yeah, like I, if I'm getting accepted into everything, then I'm like, oh, I'm per- no, I'm not perfect. Well, I always have room to boring. grow. Yeah. It's very boring. Um, people talk about marathon depression. You know, after you finish a marathon, mm. you're like, oh my god, like what now? Well, you know yeah, what I mean? And you're, how far are you training? Like, oh, how far are you from the actual marathon right oh, now? Oh, I uh, actual marathon is the first Sunday in November. Oh, so you have some time. Hmm. I, do. I, I ran the LA marathon. You'll be fine. I had an injury last year, so oh, I'm like no. coming off the energy. Oh, have you injury. done a marathon already? I have done one. I was supposed to run last oh, year for the gosh. second time. And you're doing it again? You're crazy. Yeah, well, because I pay for it mostly, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did one and I was like, well, that was enough. This will be the last. Yeah. And I will stick to halves. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I am now like fine running one or two miles here or there, yep. and I've gotten very into biking. Oh, yep, me too, especially it, living here in Brooklyn. Yes, very low impact, you know, um, and in fact, the, after I ran the marathon, I never wore any of those clothes again because I was so traumatized by all of them. I, I, <laughs> I couldn't even look at them. Like, I didn't want to touch them. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, how have you, so you've mentioned mentors a few times. Yes. How have you gone about, um, no, actually I'm not going to ask that yet. Let's still talk about TEDx. Oh. Oh yeah. You got approved. Yeah. Um, do they, because, um, I think we can all attest to a lot of TED talk people have the same, uh, sort of, what's the word for it? It starts with a C, not consonants. It's like, um, cadence. Ah. Do they train you how to talk? Did they yeah. do like a TEDx like mm-hmm. so training there was, session? Uh, we did. So okay. we, we met every Saturday cool. after we got accepted with our TEDx coaches to work on our talks. Very um, cool. Yeah. I, yeah. So I'm like the person who is a procrastinator, but then also my best work comes at the last minute. Mm-hmm. So I don't like, I don't feel comfortable like preparing months no. in advance. Have you watched the TED Talk on procrastination? Oh no, I need to watch that. It will resonate with you because I'm the same way. And basically, they were, like, sort of saying, like, people like you and I, what we're doing is we're actually building it up and tearing it apart in our heads Yep. until it hits that boiling point. And then we're like, okay, now I can put pen to paper. Yep, that's exactly how I am yeah. um, with everything that every speech that I've given. It has to come to me. Mm-hmm. I can't say it's due this day and I'm going to go write it. It has to come to me. It turned mm-hmm. out the Spotify thing just happened to come at the right time. Right. But it has to come to me. And if it doesn't come to me, I'm probably not, I'm, I don't think it's for me. Yeah. Um, and so we practiced 
uh, I you know already have some public speaking experience. Yeah. Uh, but what I did not have was memorization. Oh, yeah. Also, one of the hardest things about my area is when I'm talking on a public platform like this, mm -hmm. I have to talk to everyone and make sure I'm very inclusive of everyone. Right. And so for me, I have to be very creative on how I explain things. Scientifically. You mean, Scientifically, right? yeah. I have to be very creative of how I explain things. It's also really important to me that we talk about science, we talk about inequality in science, and we talk Certainly. about the intersection of inter, uh, social justice and genetics. And so yeah. it's not a straightforward thing to do. And so I wanted to bring so many things into this TED Talk. I wanted to bring, um, I wanted to bring in things from the podcast. So like black culture and genetics, but I also wanted to educate. I also mm -hmm. wanted to do storytelling because I knew storytelling was one, something that I'm, you know, recently getting into and I actually love. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also think it's a, it's a nice way to trick someone into being into science. Like Agreed. when you hear a story, so my, my talk is a story, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, science facts in it. And so I was memorizing. And so I did things a little different this time. I said, I'm not going to be a crazy person and send it out to 30 people and say, give me edits. Cause that's, oh, that's the type yeah. of person I am. Really? When I did my pilot episode for the podcast, I sent it to like a hundred people. I was oh like, my God. guys, tell me everything. I set up a Google, um, a Google feedback thing. Like, give me everything. Like, I just, I just want this to be perfect. Cause I'm just such, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. Right. I said, I'm not going to do that. I am going to lean on the TEDx coaches. Yes. That's what I'm going to do. And, um, about a week before then, another speaker, she had gave her talk into a group of friends and she came back with a completely different speech. She said, I threw my old speech away. My friends hated it. And I wrote a new one and she came back and her speech was like, it was already good, but it just like went into the, you know, like it just went yeah. places I had never thought. And it's Can on. Can you say who it is? That way people yeah. can link Her name is um, Natasha. I'm blanking on her last name, but the talk is about female genital mutilation. Oh, uh, I'll put and it in the, for listeners, I'll put it in the link, like in the description of the episode, I'll link to it once it's live. Yeah. It'll be live in about a month. And so the theme of the, the conference was mind shift. Mm -hmm. And so hers was shifting our, shifting your mind from female genital mutilation being a global or a problem overseas to being a very local one hmm. and it I mean she came back it was amazing so after she did I was like I'm sending it to all my friends yeah my talk was mind shift shifting the way we engage with consumer genetic testing from focusing on genetic ancestry uh -huh. to focusing on our future so the title of my talk was Afrofuturism through the power of the genome and the goal was which is a beautiful title by the thank way thank you I love Afrofuturism like obsessed with it now have you been to comic-con or anything I have not I okay. have not but like I was really passionate because if we look at consumer genetic testing it always focuses especially for black people on our past and it's such a trauma it's such a traumatic thing yeah it's not a pleasant experience and then you have to pay for the shit like it's just like what <laughs> i gotta pay to be traumatized right. and then you sell my data like it's just ah! and then pay again for the therapy on the other end of that <laughs> but it's such a beautiful thing the genome is such a beautiful thing to think about how we can ensure our futures. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the talk was about. So I don't want to spoil the TED talk by any, or the TEDx talk by any means. So yeah. I definitely encourage people to go and look it up. So you recorded it. And I guess I hadn't realized, which is silly because I went to TEDx Portland. Okay. So they record it. And then how long is it until it's released? A month. A month. You have... I, 
That's what I've been told. I don't know all the TEDx rules, but a month. Okay. Yeah. And so was this like a large event in Flatbush that like a bunch of people in the area were invited to? And then you spoke. Um, how was your experience? Did yeah. you like it? How it was a sold like? out event. Oh my gosh. Of course um, it was. It was. Yeah. So I think the hardest part for me that was new was the um the teddy part of it right like you talked about cadence and like mm. like the the part writing the speech was one thing you want it to be good the other part is memorizing it getting your cadence together you know working your cues on the stage and like your movement on the stage oh. which I hadn't practiced very well mm-hmm. um and then you know being easy with myself I knew we were going to forget some things right so what I did was I recorded it I re- you know I did the podcast thing I made an audio version of the the speech and I just listened to it over and over oh, and over God. and over again. And then the day before I was listening to it, I found something that I wanted to change mm-hmm. um, and I changed it. And when I changed it, I remembered it in giving this speech. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, I was supposed to say a scientific fact and I completely forgot the scientific fact. I didn't even mention it in the whole talk. I don't think anyone will notice. Do you, would you like to share it now? I can. You, okay. you want me to share the whole thing. So I, I was. So it's really common in the black community, particularly when I tell people that I'm a geneticist, they always go on and on about how they have Indian in their family. Mm-hmm. And so like the term Indian was created from Christopher Columbus. When he arrived in America, he thought it was Indian. He called the people here right. Indians. The first of many mistakes. Yeah, the first of many mistakes. Right? And so, um, but that term... Uh, became common in the black community and really genetically speaking you know African Americans have less than five percent Native American ancestry so when we say I have Indian in my family what we're hinting at is that there's Native American ancestry in our family and the reason why um, a lot of black and brown folks or African Americans really say this is because you know during slavery we talked about we didn't talk about this on air but we talk about colorism mm-hmm. and colorism is a being a big issue and so beauty is historically merely in a lot of world populations associated with assimilating to whiteness right, right. and so not having you know coarse hair or having very long hair having high cheekbones any type of characteristic that is not what you see most often, we would attribute it or being fair-skinned to having Indian in your family or being Native American. And what's interesting about that is we completely don't acknowledge the fact that this is European ancestry is really what is showing up. Right. And um, if you think about how slavery worked and how it was created, you know, it wasn't really set up for African Americans and Native Americans to come together, right? Probably wouldn't work that well if it did. So. <laughs> no. If we look at it genetically speaking, you don't have Af- you don't have Native American ancestry. Right. So during the talk, I wanted to make sure because some of my closest genetic genetics, you know, um, associates and colleagues uh, are of either Latinx or are Native Indigenous people, and I did not want to be offensive, mm-hmm. even though this is slang that is used in our community, you know. And I, you know, also very sensitive, like, I don't want to explain, you know, cultural things because we have a habit, most people of color have a habit of explaining our cultural things so white people can understand them. I don't want to do that. At the same time, I do not want to offend an entirely different group of people. And so I made sure that I was like conscious of all of that, but completely forgot the science of, 
you know, that mm. we don't have Native American ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is written proof that I do know, but <laughs> I just was being human that day and forgot. Well, that, we'll do that. As people, we have a tendency to be very human. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah that's um, and that is a very difficult line to to walk to to your point and how I mean so much of your work I imagine like the first your education right and as you peel back some layers and then with your work um that must be like very difficult and isolating like as a black woman to be studying something that you're one of few people in your field especially it sounds like in your education who's studying and then also sort of um pulling apart a lot of um, like the conversations in the black community about genes and stuff. How have you, how has like your own emotional work been for yourself? Like forget explaining it to other people, but how has this affected you? And like, what's your sort of growth been like in in that area? Um, It's been, it's been hard, you know, because the more I learn, um, the darker it gets, Mm. but you know, I'm very science, you know, I'm a scientist, so I, I really understand like the value. Mm-hmm. And so, um, another thing that's important is that I'm a geneticist and I've never done a consumer genetic test. Mm-hmm. I literally create them for a living, but I've never done one. Right. And, and understanding the reasons why I haven't done it and my own personal journey. I am a fair skinned black woman. Um, what does that mean to me? Mm-hmm. How does that perceive me in this world? And what does that mean for me genetically? So I think one of the things that I've learned along this journey is kind of like being confident in the identity that I've, that I've developed and that I have. And that, you know, being fair-skinned doesn't mean that I am not as black as the next person. Um, being fair-skinned also is not an excuse for me to be treated better. Mm-hmm. Um nor is it a, a system of hierarchy. So one of the things I used to be really concerned about when consumer genetic tests came out, a lot of friends were doing them and everyone was like, oh, see, I have, you know, 38% European ancestry. And it became like the new form of colorism, you know? Interesting. And it was yeah. hard for me, you know? It was like, because I didn't experience it that way. You know, I it was traumatizing to think about the ancestors who live yeah, literally, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, didn't do a test, but like, I know that it's right. there, but just to think about the European ancestry and why it's there is, is yeah. a traumatizing thing, especially because I'm also, in addition to like learning all this thing in a personal life, in my personal life with dating and interactions with men, I'm just now very hypersensitive to sexual violence, right. very hypersensitive to the over-sexualization of women mm-hmm. um, in very nuanced ways. Some ways I wish I didn't want, you know, I didn't, I almost don't want to know, you know, yeah. but experiencing all of that in like all of these layers, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. But um, again, to stay positive, you know, the biggest thing is that we have to tell our stories and more importantly, we have to tell how we experience things like mm-hmm. everything is not easy um everything is not you know you know a fairy tale it's dark sometimes and as i'm walking through the darkness and as i'm growing it's important that i talk about those stages of the growth yeah not the start and the end what's the middle part this mm-hmm. is why your podcast is so relevant because we oh, really you. need to yeah these are the things that people need 
right? Because I remember I listened to a podcast and they were talking about, um, this was called By the Book. Have you listened to By the no, Book before? And uh, two women who lead the show and they basically read these self-help books, but they do everything that's oh, in them. Oh, I have heard of this podcast yes. and I love it because I have been a self-help book junkie my whole life and I've always wondered even as a teenager I would wonder how fascinating it would be if you actually did the things well and if I layered them all on because some of them are also conflicting right like if you look at some of these health self-help books and how you're supposed to organize your time and the attitude you're supposed to have all these things you're supposed to do I realize that you could spend your whole day self-helping and like not actually doing anything <laughs> right like I'm meal prepping all day and then right like I'm meditating these three different meditations for which one is each. better right. this goes back to the point you know I was saying earlier is that every person is going to be different mm -hmm. and it's not going to work you know everything is going to work differently for different yeah. people this episode of by the book kind of getting back to like why it's important we talk about the things in between the episode on by the book they were it was a diet or something mm. they were doing and i had thought that like i was the only person who did like these crazy things like you know if i'm doing a diet i'm like oh i ate you know whatever let's say it's say eat three apples today i ate three apples today why am i not losing weight or like hyper obsessing oh, over my weight and my body you're the only person doing this it was some of the things that they had like described, uh -huh. the details that they oh, had described. Yeah. It was so this goes back to what I meant, like the details, yeah. right? So like um just thinking about, oh, if I, I ate this one day, you know, like literally obsessing about it in my brain. Yeah. Or like weighing myself every day. And yeah. like wait or starving my like these moments of like I'm literally starving myself right. to do something. And I'm like, well, obviously it is unhealthy, but I'm like, oh, you know, it was like my secret for a long time. Right. Um, but then like listening to this podcast and hearing them talk, because when they record it, they talk about, they, they're recording during the book experience. Oh. So you get to hear them, you know, day three, like it, you know, and they kind of like summarize. They also summarize the people in their lives and how they experience it. So their husbands will sometimes come on the show or they're recording, you know, while they're cooking dinner or doing something. And so you can, cool. the husbands are like, yeah. Yeah. Seeing them go through this. But like going back to like that idea, it's so important that we talk about those really mm -hmm. small details because a lot of times we think we're the only weirdo who thinks this or does this. Yeah. And there's a whole community of us who do it. And it doesn't help you. Sometimes I've just found hearing somebody else vocalize something that I've been feeling, whether it's in the category of like weight management or losing weight or whatever, or in whatever category, when you hear it come out of someone's mouth and you realize how ridiculous it is. It just, it helps you see the forest from the trees in your own life. Yeah. Where I've definitely been around people that have irritated me and then I've realized, oh, it's because they're doing things that I try so hard not to do. Mm -hmm. Or or just, I mean, I think a lot about, especially in like the food department, like the realization at some point where I went like, oh, if I stopped worrying so much about like what I should be eating and just live my life with what I'm every other facet of my life, I'd probably lose weight because I wouldn't be as focused on yep. what I should be eating. Yep. And like, and then within that too, it's like, 
it just isn't a healthy thing because if you're always focused on what you're not supposed to have and what you are supposed to have, your whole world revolves around that. Yep. And I, I had this epiphany a few years ago where there were a few things in my life that I was not happy with what I was doing. And I went like, oh, idiot. All of these things are things you're supposed to stop doing. <laughs> like, literally what you need to do is an inaction. Like, if you just did less, you wouldn't be trying to not do these things. Yeah. That, like, it's a very different thing. Like, you've already formed the habit. You can just not do that anymore versus yeah. I, I already work out all the time. I don't need to tell myself, hey, get up and work out today because I'm already doing that. Yeah. And so it was, like, a very interesting sort of way of, of toying and playing with that around. But yeah, it, it is very important, I think, for us to share those things because it helps. When you can hear someone else vocalize it, it does help you piece it together more. I mean, I don't know if you've ever listened to Aisha Tyler's podcast. Mm, I don't think so. It's old. I don't think she's released an episode since 2016. Okay. However, the conversations she had with her guests were like therapy to me. Okay. Where I like, I did so much like personal growth just listening, um, specifically, I think the, um, the Viola Davis episode... Charlize Theron, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, and then there was, like, another episode, I think the Tim Ferriss episode. Okay. Those I've, like, re-listened to so many times. Okay. Because I found them to be so helpful and, like, oh, especially with the women of just, like, you're this amazing woman who also, like, you know, didn't feel worthy at some point or, like, also didn't feel like you had it figured out and mm-hmm. that has been... I think just the more we can share stories is that it's a very therapeutic thing. It's just, you know, it also humanizes people who you don't, right. And you're, you know, you don't, you don't think of them as being like your normal person. Right. Like whenever I meet someone who's like a celebrity or influencer or something like that, always just recenter myself. This is just a normal person. I think the, the human, the most humanizing thing I've ever been in was being in a bathroom line that Rihanna was in. <gasps> and I was like, ah, you had to wait in line too. Ah! You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're also here just hoping these stalls move quicker. Yeah. You know, like sure you might've zipped past the line in front, right? Like of the club that we were at. Yep. But then seeing her in line nervously on, not nervously, but like on her phone, trying not to make eye contact, just like the rest of us, it yep. was like a, mm, we'll all be all right. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, yep. That's so, a good story. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I mean, that's literally a, my biggest coping me- mechanism is just de-escalating everything. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, well, I guess we're all sharing air here. So. Yep. Yep. Um, so I have one question before the last question. Okay. Uh, how have you approached... Um, like getting mentorships and I guess like how because they, I talk to a lot of people about how they get mentorships and it, it usually comes to the same things about like you know go for someone who you also respect as a person and their ethics and like you get along with and have some like specific things that you want in mind like for yourself but I'm kind of interested like how your mentorships have changed as your career has mm-hmm. grown and, and also grown to like encompass um, sort of this like public face, facing persona. Mm. How they have changed or how they've started all together? How they've changed. Okay. I think. Um, it's interesting because like a mentorship is kind of like a relationship or a friendship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have different mentors for different things, for different parts of you. I would say definitely like my academic mentors, my relationship with them has changed. I'm not in academia anymore, mm-hmm. um, but we still are very knowledgeable on like what each other is doing. Mm-hmm. And so we are able to either, you know, have think tanks about what the other person is doing. 
uh, or able to kind of think about like what is the best path. So you can think about like an, an, a mentorship. If I'm now doing a podcast, my mentors in academia are perfect people to come through and check the science, right? They can right. still help me in that regard. And when they're writing a grant and they're working on ethics or they're working on diversity and inclusion or they're working on education tools, you know, they can still come to me. So I think what's happened is that I, as the mentee, has kind of carved out my own little research program or yeah you know, niche. Mm -hmm. And my mentors now are, you know, getting learning about my area, um, but also can still be helpful. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, all of them, I have all been receiving, you know, the work that I'm doing well. And to in a lot, it's been shocking me how much that I am educating them on things that they may not have known about Mm -hmm. from um from the black perspective Mm -hmm. because in a way as I'm you know doing more public speaking and I'm doing the podcast it feels like a a coming like a a reveal you know Mm -hmm. like I'm I'm coming out of the box you know Mm -hmm. here and I'm sharing that I'm black not that they didn't know that I was black but they didn't know probably um how, because again, a lot of times in a lot of those professional mentorships, I assimilated to whiteness to fit in, to, mm-hmm. to get opportunities, yeah. whatever. I was never very like embraceive. And like uh, one of my friends, he always talks about bring your whole self to work. No person of color has that privilege. Um, now I'm pushing myself to do that more. Mm-hmm. But in, even through the podcast and in Twitter, now I'm finally comfortable with revealing. But to everyone else, this is new. Well, and you just recently wrote your first non-scientific article. Yeah, which is like, you know, they are not used to me talking about this at all. Um, Right. And so, but it's been received very well. And it's been very, um, it's been a very safe space of, you know, letting me, uh, you know, letting me express my blackness Mm -hmm. through genetics in whatever way feels comfortable to me. Yeah. And that has been a relief because, you know, one of the fears, particularly with the op-ed piece that I wrote, um, when I first started talking about it on Twitter, I did get some feedback. Well, like, well, there was interracial, just to give a bit better background, the op-ed piece was about a poorly marketed genetic ancestry yeah, that glamorized slavery mm-hmm. and um i did get some or- originally like oh well you know interracial dating happened back then and people were in love and you know that completely dismisses the pain that was received from the ad and so just kind of like acknowledging those things yeah. and and saying I'm, i never said that that wasn't a possibility but it was not it was not the norm. It's <laughs> right, not the majority of the... It's not yeah. the majority. And so actually in the article, I bring in some science to like really hone Which in I that loved. point. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is exactly what a lot of like the conversation is missing right now on Twitter. It's a lot of backlash on things because people, for whatever reason, when they get information that doesn't align with their perspective, even if there is hard scientific fact, right? People still will disagree with it Mm -hmm. but when there's no science like pulled in at all which you would think for something like that that you wouldn't need science to prove it Mm -hmm. you know but the science really does help give it a spine to stand up and like withstand a lot of people's like and I put 
feelings in quotes because really it's literally just people people's feelings it's, it has nothing to do with the reality and the reality that like regardless of what these people who disagree with the article feel it does not change the way and how traumatizing and triggering it is for a black person to be on the receiving end of that ad yeah exactly like, that doesn't change your feelings just because they feel that the past was something that it wasn't Exactly. And I and, and I go back to in that experience, what it taught me, especially when I have conversations with people is that like, you know, slavery was bad. It sucked. And by no means should we blame, you know, or um, by no means is it my intention to make create now another traumatizing experience right. for a white person who was not even there. Right. That is not my intention. Mm -hmm. But the conversation does become a lot safer as we just own it yeah and we own these ugly things that you know were taught to us by our ancestors we own it they existed we acknowledge it we also decide not to participate in it anymore right and so I have my own things too you mm -hmm. know that I own that are not you know the proudest moments you know we have elitism in the black community going to certain schools and having you know there's paper bag tests and colorism and issues like that you know have I always not been a part of it no I was raised by you know older people who still thought of this way of thinking and so I am still their descendants mm -hmm. and I acknowledge that the way that I was taught was not right and now I'm unlearning all those things and it's okay for me to say, yeah, there was a lot of crappy stuff that I did and they did in the past, but that's not who I want to be. Yeah, I want to be something that's you know better, and I, and that I think that's all it is. It's like, and then no one is offended, you know, right? Yeah. And it, it becomes just now human to human. Let's grow. Let's change because we can't change if we want to, you know, deny. We can't. Right. Absolutely, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um. So the last question I ask everybody. Okay is uh, what is something that you would want to hear a future episode of the behind the scenes of? Mm. And I don't know if you've done this. Okay, I have a couple. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so one of them I would like to know a behind the scenes of, um, why am I blinking? Um, I like that you went from a couple to blinking. I know because I want to say the right <laughs> word. And I'm not going to, a soliloquy, is that the right word? Of like For like a poem format, kind of? No, that's not what I was thinking. Um, what is it called? Like in like a play. A satire? No, in a play, and it's just you on stage. Monologue. Monologue, sorry. No, that's um, okay. Yes, I don't know where soliloquy came from. But yes, I would like <laughs> to know, like just in general, from an actor's perspective, how is it, like what is the behind the scenes on learning your lines and becoming a different person. You are a saint for asking this question because, in fact, I have a series of actors that are going to be on. Yay! So I am happy. So first off, do you, I would break that into a few things, right? Like the monologue, there's a monologue part of it, but then also embracing a fully different character. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. The monologue part was just like me selfishly trying to figure out how the hell do you memorize all this stuff because that TED talk was... I can send you something on Instagram. My friend Margot, she's at Margot Brooke on Instagram. She's posted some things that she's learned in her acting classes and she just, she was on the most recent season of Legion and like she's... Okay. Um, she's been modeling for a long time and she's been doing more acting lately and I loved her. She shared them and if you go to her Instagram, you'll see them, I think, highlighted, but like one of them was... Um, 
I think she was like breaking it into separate pieces and it's so I play music and one thing that you do in music right is like instead of learning your full set yeah you'll learn like the first half of a song right and you just get that half down properly yeah and then move on to the next half and then like you have that whole song and then you practice them in a different order sometimes for each song because you also don't want it, music is different, right? Because you're like, oh, if, if we decide to do song number five and do it number two, I'm screwed because I had something else in mind. Yeah. So with the monologue, though, batches, and then you add in tone and, like, cadence at the very end is what she said. Uh, but I'll send you that link because I found it very okay, helpful that, for my that, own acting stuff. Okay. That sounds, like, that sounds like a good one. But the character one, and there's a few acting schools that um, I'm going to one soon in L.A. And then I've looked at some out here, too, that I can send you. Because I think when you told me what you were going through, I was like, you might want to take an improv class. Yeah, I, I know. Love it. Look at UCB. You should totally go to UCB. Yeah, I, okay, I've heard. I've heard. I had some friends who've done it, so I'm not... Yeah, I'm and not... they do intensives too. So I've okay. done I've done a Groundlings day long intensive that was just one day, and then I did a UCB week long intensive that was like five or six hours every day for a week, oh my and goodness. then a performance at the end. But I like that for me that works better because I travel a lot. Yeah, than to do like an eight week class that meets twice a week or something. You know? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's one okay. acting. Okay, this is really weird. Good. A pilot. That's not weird. Okay. That's not weird at all. That's great. Yeah, I just, because in just thinking about the job itself, I, I have anxiety just thinking about it. Really? Yeah, because I'm like, I have this huge responsibility yeah, to get people here safely. That. Which, by all means, pilots stay nervous, you know? Yeah, like, I'm just like, how do you manage this, the whole thing? Like, that's crazy to me. Uh-huh. Well, um, yeah, but you have a huge responsibility in your work. Yeah, but no one dies. Remember? See? I mean, they <laughs> <laughs> like if I don't show up to work, everybody still lives. It's not on me. Fair. Fair. <laughs> um, and what was the other one I was gonna say? Um, what was it? It's on the tip of my tongue. Goodness. We did monologue. Pilot. Pilot. What was it? Huh. Oh no. I wish I could help you. Like I'm trying to think of what else. Come we get in the like, brain and get mentors. in here. We talked um, about science. What was it? I'm sorry, I'm blanking. No, that's okay. You can if also, I remember, I'll email yeah, it Yeah, email you. me or shoot me a or text, text. And then I'll just add it into the outro. What was That's okay. Remember. It's blank. It's afternoon time brain. It's like 6.30. <laughs> and neither of us have had dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to dinner now. Good. Thank goodness. Well, thank you so much, Janina. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. Yes. And um, I'm excited to hear your TEDx talk. Yay. Thank you for having yeah, me. And I'm even more excited to hear the launch of the podcast. Yes. The podcast is coming. It's going to be happening. I'm really happy for you. That's incredible. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. I really, really appreciate it. You can find Janina at at in those jeans pod on Twitter and DJ Squared on Instagram. She's awesome. I really loved getting to know her and please watch her TEDx talk, listen to her podcast, subscribe. I am enjoying it thus far, and I have only listened to the trailer and the pilot. I cannot wait to hear more. More episodes are launching in February 2020, which is just around the corner because this is getting released in January, assuming that I stay on track for that release date. Anyways, um, 
I bring this up every now and then, but I really, really recommend using Breaker to listen to your podcast. They're not paying for this. I'm just telling you that as a podcaster, that is where I would like to be listened to and followed. Also, because I put together playlists, not only of this podcast, but general podcasts. So any science-specific episodes are getting put in a Steam playlist on my Breaker profile. And those include episodes of this podcast, but also conversations that I've heard on other podcasts. There are also specific playlists for just being a woman in the world. Let me think, what else? I have a politics-specific one, artists, and strategists. So if you are really into any of those categories, I may start one on trauma too, time will tell. But um, it's just my preferred way. I do love Spotify, and I use Spotify for music playlists. They just haven't launched a podcast playlist feature yet. Oh, the other cool thing about Breaker is that they let you skip silences and have different increments that you can speed up podcasts. I'm sure not every podcaster likes this, but I tend to listen to podcasts on one and a half to two times the speed, except for Heat Rocks, um, some comedy podcasts because the timing and the speed are just different on those, and Song Exploders. So those ones are exceptions, but I'm a huge Econ Talk listener and I listen to that on two times the speed because economists tend to talk very slowly and I find it exhausting. Check out Breaker, follow me, follow BTS Podcast. You can create your own playlist, see what other people are following, and it's a great way to discover new podcasts. Thank you again for listening. Please do subscribe, rate, review. Head over to anchor.fm slash BTS Podcast to become a monthly contributor. It would help a ton. And uh, most importantly, listen to Janina's podcast and share this episode and follow her on all social media so that you can support what she's doing. She is great. And I am really excited to have gotten to have this conversation with her. Thank you again. Sorry for the long ramble. I've had a lot of coffee today. Oh, P.S. Music is by Benjamin Batherum. Thank you, Ben. You are greatly appreciated. That's it for real this time. Thanks again for listening.